Hello there, my name's Martin Shaw and a hundred thousand welcomes to the Smoke Hole Sessions. I'm sitting here by the bank of the River Dart. I must have been here a hundred times in the last year. Because like a lot of you, I've been sequestered away in my little cottage. And there came a point recently where I realised in some fashion I've been withdrawing, going into the deep interior in a way that finally was not useful. And so these conversations, rather selfishly, are an attempt to coax myself out of myself again and back into the warm flank of other human beings. I can't really remember the shape that I used to be in and I only have glimpses of what I may become. I think many of us are in that place. So how do we reintroduce ourselves? How do we build a bit of culture out of something like this? Well, Germany had a bit of <laughs> reintroducing itself to Europe after the Second World War. And it makes me think of a Luftwaffe pilot, better known as an artist called Joseph Boyce. Now, Boyce was invited years after the Second World War to America and he arrived with typical panache and ingenuity. This is how it happened. He was flown into JFK, wrapped in felt, put in an ambulance, taken to a gallery. And the only thing waiting in the gallery was a coyote. And for a few days, Boyce and the coyote eyeballed each other. There must have been a bit of hay. I think there was a few copies of the New York Times. But they just sat in the energy of each other until at some point, and I don't know when that point was, Boyce felt that primordial contact had been struck. He got up, wrapped in felt, put back in the ambulance, flown back to Germany. And the name of the piece was I Like America and America likes me. Now, years later, I was invited to America for the first time and I did not go with such uh, elegance as Boyce, but I do have a story because I missed the connection at Newark Airport and I got chucked out and I had to tough the night out on the street outside the um, airport. The rain was coming down and I was hunkered down in my jacket and I woke up at about three or four in the morning and there was a guy trying to rob me. There was a man with his uh, hands deep in my rucksack. He'd already got my passport in his fist. And when he saw me looking at him, when he saw that I was awake, he uttered the immortal words, oh, thank God you're here. Thank God you're awake. And uh, I decided to work with ever whatever fiction he was about to lay on me so i said tell me more he said well i'm a i'm a lawyer and i've been in a terrible crash i've lost everything and i i couldn't wake you up and i was just trying to find out if you had any money at all on you that could just help me get to back to georgia and get back to my family and i listened and i nodded and i looked concerned and i said well you know buddy i bet in my wallet I do have some money that can help, but you are not gonna need my passport. 
So I took the passport back. I gave him some money and for a few minutes we continued the fiction. This was my first real conversation in America. Until finally he stopped, he smiled and he just stepped back into the mysteries of the night and was gone. Maybe he was Coyote. So here I am sitting by this old river and I was delighted when I found out that my first conversation was going to be with the Irish stinker, comedian and man who was effectively too big for any box you would want to put him in, the comedian Tommy Tiernan. At this moment in time, Tommy's probably best known for a TV show he has where he never knows who the guests are. And he has two wonderful podcasts. One uh, is called Private Investigations, where you get to wander in the grandeur and the strangeness of Tommy's brain. And there's another one he does with his friends Hector and Lurita. And that's the three of them in his little hen house working into the kind of claustrophobia of their familial relationship, filled with humour, filled with crack. So I sit here now talking to you and I say this, courage, good cheer, let's go meet Tommy Tiernan. Tommy, brother, thank you for having this moment with me. My pleasure. A few months ago, you said something very interesting and you, you were kind of circling around the notion that when lockdown began, although we had announcements and we had uh, information about it, there was no sort of ceremony as we moved into this thing, which for some of us feels a little bit like some kind of initiation we can't quite name yet. And one of the suggestions you had was, well, we may have had no ceremony going in. Is there one we could find coming out or at least beginning to navigate? And I wondered in the spirit of coming out, you had anything to say about ways in your own life that you're finding you're navigating this thing? So for me, it's, it's just about finding a way of, and it's, it's not even a decision to find a way because it comes naturally you you adapt without thinking so it was about choosing ways to work wondering what engages me you know i'm delighted to have stepped away from stand-up and i'm curious now about i'll always be a mouth worker you know i'll always be using words I'm a, I'm a communicator. Whether those words are written by me or not, not entirely sure whether that matters. So I was looking at a long poem this morning written by Patrick Kavanagh called Loch Derg. And I think, okay, is there a possibility of me performing that? Who would I perform it to? Do I need an audience? I did an afternoon reading of a play called The Gili Concert by Tom Murphy about four or five years ago. And it was just myself another actor and a director in a room. But it made the day for me. There was no audience. There was just working with these words and the story. Of all the Gospels, 
they reckon that Mark's gospel was actually written to be performed, that it has that beat and that rhythm in it. And that the most frequent phrase in that gospel is, and then, and then he went to Jerusalem and then, and then. So uh, wondering, okay, is there a performance in that? I've been looking at stuff by Beckett. So I, I will naturally just find those things to be thinking about and to be wondering with whether or not they need an actual audience. I I don't know. Um, the the private reading of something can be as beneficial as a public performance of it. So I come down here to the shed once a week to do a solo podcast where I just have an idea and I, I have a vague map of it and I riff for 20, 25 minutes. I don't know if there's anybody listening. There's no one in the room with me when I'm doing it. But it's a way of, in the same way, this conversation, a way of working with phrases and, and rhythm and meaning. And because of the pandemic is entirely separated from the commercial part of that type of work. So before the pandemic, like yourself, you're in front of audiences and you're, you know, and with stand-up, you're working to a particular expectation. The only limits on it really are your own projection of the audience's expectation. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of, that's the energy that you wrestle with, I think, as a stand-up is what are the audience wanting? What do I feel like giving? Sometimes you can be trapped in that. So there are no answers, really. There's just the inclination to work with words. That's all. I was watching Dave Chappelle and he was receiving a lifetime. It was like Mark Twain Comedy Award. And one of the most beautiful things he did was he just slowly worked through thanks for people that he loved and had touched him on the way and, and got him to where he was. But he looks at his mum, who's up in the, the balcony in the rafters, I think possibly with maybe even Obama, and he says that he grew up in a house where his mum would tell him about the, the African storyteller, the griot. And they were this, like a shanaki, you know, cultural historian of a place. And he used this phrase, he said, when a griot died, it was like a library being burnt to the ground. Hmm. That has huge significance for me. When I was a kid, I remember seeing Lenny Henry interviewing Billy Connolly and saying, Billy, you know, where'd you keep the stories? Where'd you keep the yarn? Where'd you keep the jokes? Where'd you keep the shape? And he banged his beautiful curly head and said, it all lives here. Yeah. And I almost had a fucking seizure of joy when I saw it as a child because it was the nearest thing to a kind of highwayman I'd ever seen in real life. I couldn't believe he existed on English television. I couldn't believe yeah. that shape was there. And it would be years before I would realise that the kind of storytelling I was invested in and interested in was a lot of the places you push your work. Dave Chappelle does his, Connolly does his. And I remember recently Chappelle saying... Do you not see the poverty of our culture when to say something to you, I have to have a, a punchline? Just before lockdown, 
literally that you and I met in Bath and I saw possibly, was it your last gig? Um, very close to us, yeah, yeah. I remember watching you in the, I was right at the back, but I watched you in the first half. It's always difficult watching someone from a distance. You know, my eyesight's bad, but you were like this weird little kind of crow on stage. And I could tell that even though you were mic'd up, you were fucking using all of your vocal capacities. It was, you know, you were there, there was proper volume involved. And the second half of the show swung into this place that I particularly love, which is kind of not just information. A, f a friend of mine was saying that the era we're in right now is a loaves and fishes era. Like we can't hear any more information. We need words that are loaves and fishes that have a deeper sustenance. And I saw you pulling in, you know, maybe close to a thousand people and then take us into this, for me, potentially dangerous territory. You're going to lose people there because, because of what you're doing. And then it, suddenly we're in, we're in the realm of storytelling. So where I'm going in this ramble, I suppose, is something about where the storytelling exists within your comedy uh, and I almost wonder if I suppose as I'm saying this, it's the other way around. The comedy exists within the storytelling. What I love about what you do is that the story, that the comedy for me is peculiar and erratic. It doesn't come like a Des O'Connor pattern, bang, 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 which I love. It's like a kind of linguistic capoeira. I never know where the blow's going to come. And in my own work, it took years and years and years before I realised that humour was a good thing to bring into it. So anything about storytelling or, or comedy or griots or anything you wanted to jump into? It can be very comforting and reassuring to impersonate somebody else. But there already is a Billy Connolly. There already is a Martin Shaw. There already is a Dave Chappelle. And while I might say, OK, well, I, I want to do... I want to try that story that I heard Martin tell, the, the Tatterhood story. I want to try that. And then I kind of go, well, hang on. That's, is that something I'm trying to be or something that I am? You know, the same with Billy Connolly. I would read about the way Billy works, not knowing what story he's going to start with. Deliberately putting one story here and another story here and then trying to ride the gap. And then the following night going like that or like this. For him, it was, the joy was in making the jumps. But those people already exist. Sometimes your inclination can be original. And that's what makes it uncomfortable is because there's no map in front of you of what you're doing. So I really don't think that I'm a storyteller at all. Um, working with Hector on the podcast that I do, Hector is a real storyteller. Hector has travelled the world and comes back and he's just phenomenal at painting these pictures and you get lost. So Hector's storytelling is about what happened. I'm a fantasist. So I, I, I find more freedom and play in imagining scenarios. Personally speaking, I probably drift more towards somewhere towards Eddie Izzard, maybe in that kind of that dream world that doesn't actually exist. And and also 
self-definition is so limiting. I, I'm somebody who, when I left school, worked at various different things. So I worked at being a, uh, trying to be a social worker. I worked at stacking shelves. I worked as an actor. And for the past 25 years, I've worked as a stand-up comedian. But that's only a job. You know, and the next part of, of my work might be different. It's not to become limited by your own expectations of yourself. The key to it, which is really hard, I think, hard and joyful and easy, is to find, have the courage to find the freedom and have the courage to find the play. Where are you playing? Where are you having fun? Your own mind has all these expectations. Well, what are you and what are you doing? And and and. Who are you like and are you as good as? And all those things disappear when you're having fun because the fun justifies itself. And you don't need comparisons when you're laughing. Now, that's not to say that, you know, if I'm doing a show in a theatre and it's advertised as stand-up comedy and a thousand people turn up with bottles of beer and, you know, handbags full of gin... (laughs) It's kind of like, there's an expectation there, you know, you have to meet it. But then you you think about the history of the fool. So in my imagination, I'd have Jack McGowan, who was a great Beckett actor. Also, he played the fool, I think, to Paul Schofield's King Lear in a film by Peter Brook. So the, he'd be he'd be one of the the ghost templates that I'd have in my mind of where to push the work, you know. Um, I mean, the, the the danger is self indulgence when talking about it, but the reality also is you have a mouth. How are you going to use it? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Countering slightly. Uh, what you were saying is that luckily for for my angle, there are as many types of storytelling as there is weather patterns. And I get the joy of listening to you and Hector and, of course, uh, Larita week after week. It's very strange, you see, because I don't realise that anyone else has heard it because I'm just alone in my cottage. It's so funny. I've told you this before. I I got concussion. Because I was on a run, I always do it when I'm involved with some kind of physical discomfort. So I'm running or I'm exercising and the sheer weird claustrophobia of, of, of the hen house and this peculiar family dynamic of the three of you. Hector is this slightly overwhelming older brother. I don't know if he is older. And it's fucking, it's as if his mouth has swallowed a microphone. You know, he's like, yeah. I've got my fucking Jaffa kicks and I sneak <laughs> down the stairs. And, and it's, it, it is a, a wonderful form of storytelling, but it's not the only kind. Nick Cave, Nick yeah. Cave says an interesting thing. He says, I no longer believe in the story that goes from A to B with a redemptive ending. I am too destroyed to believe in that. But I wow. believe in moments within stories And it's my job as a lyricist, not necessarily to walk you hand by hand through every scene, but I may move the whole thing around. And Nick Cave storytelling 
is a different kind of storytelling to Hector and it's a different kind of storytelling to you. And I'm not trying to fetishise the word. I just noticed myself that storytelling exists for me when I see somebody in some peculiar way trying to tell some kind of truth. I don't mean having a lot of students of mine that are interested in storytelling. They're always... Um, there's always a stage where it's as if they have swallowed a thesaurus. Yeah. The sheer bedazzlement of words, the Dylan Thomasness of words is such an intoxicant, they lose touch with the content and suddenly they're, they're high on themselves. Yeah. Which is a desperately dangerous and interesting place to be when you're sort of intoxicated by yourself in a room or, you know, with people watching. Did you feel with comedy that you arrived and were able to show your kind of all quadrants of your psyche or did it, has it changed over the years? I, I think the most recent thing that I've been aware of is that I've been given uh, talents and, and a gift for communicating to honour that present is to use it i get caught up sometimes i have a kind of a a, a christian taskmaster, the ghost <laughs> the ghost of guilt and stuff like that and so one of the questions i ask myself if another comedian was doing this would i watch it so year, years ago i did this for about a year and a half two years i did these completely improvised shows with no preparation um, and they were a howl, and I don't mean that in terms of being a laugh, they were a howl, some sort of a primal scream. I would get up and kind of moved into very existentialist territory. But I knew that it was a worthwhile thing to do because I asked myself, okay, if Dave Chappelle was doing this, would I go to watch it? If Dara O'Brien was doing this, would I go to watch it? And the answer was yes, because it seemed to me a kind of a nudity that was good to share. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. So that's the, they're the only things that I'm aware of really is that I have talents. So I should exhibit them. I should do the thing that I'm able to do. It's proper that I do that. It's proper that everybody in the world is made up of different kind of chemical imbalance, different, different psychological maps, different DNA, different genetic history, different families. And this all ends up as an individual. And I've ended up as an individual with these particular talents. Now, I'm vastly impoverished in other areas. I mightn't be a great communicator to my family in the house. I might tend towards solitude. I mightn't have a great gift for friendship. I mightn't be able to write a short story. I mightn't be able to. There are losses. There are minuses, but there are pluses. So, you know, they're the only things I'm aware of, really. And also how at home I feel on stage and in the theatre. Where I just, I had the sense when I was younger of watching shows on stage and of never really feeling at home in the audience. <laughs> you know, that I'd be I'd be watching a band play 
And I just had this kind of certainty that I was standing in the wrong part of the room. <laughs> that, that, I, that I I wanted to be under the arc light. That's where I belonged. So when I walk into a theatre nowadays, I feel at home. Yeah. Uh, especially an empty theatre. You know, I just feel there's a small little theatre in town here that's owned by a very famous company called Druid. And I just, as soon as the door opens of that room, the smell, it's a, it only f- sits a hundred people. Uh, that's where I belong. It's an interesting thing you bring up, which is the darkness of a theatre. Because I've watched the darkness of a theatre destroy many good oral storytellers. Because the currency with oral storytelling is so frequently eye contact. Yeah. Getting so many of your cues from up from, from reaction. And I, I did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours by campfires before finally I was deemed interesting enough to be puffed up to the big city. And suddenly I was in the Soho Theatre in London with this sort of c- catastrophe of lights around me where I couldn't see anything. And suddenly about a third of my innate nervous system, my echolocation, like an animal, was gone. Yeah. And over time, that changed. And over time, I got, I steadied into it. But I've watched a lot of good storytellers suddenly become bad actors in the flash of an eye because they can't see who they're talking to. But aren't you not always able to make out, say, the first two or three rows? I think over time. And I think also yeah. if you have a good lighting guy, I think it changes. And of course, you learn to dip underneath the lights and you can go forward. And of course, you can, there's nothing stopping you stage diving into the audience or doing any, any number of shenanigans. But initially, it was the rabbit dipped in the headlights situation. There's an anthropologist, Victor Turner, and he has a lovely word, communitas. And it's when you feel the power of the herd. You feel the steam coming from the backs. You can feel the bewonderment. You can hear the coughing. And I mean, I've seen that at Vicar Street. You know, I've seen you there in all of that. And I think I said it, it's like a bear pit. Yeah. You know, it was it was a different thing, man. You know, as I said, I could feel the voice was straining in the way that a that a an or a storyteller does. I've noticed I suddenly realized the other day that I hadn't raised my voice for a year. I've talked yeah. a lot. But yeah. that thing where you're pacing and the adrenaline's up and all of that business, I've forgotten about that. And I'm, although I have events booked for the summer, there's a not a reluctance or an ambivalence or a curiosity about whether I want to keep doing it. Yeah. How do, I mean, how, how do you feel about that, that thing again, stand up, doing it again? About two or three years ago, uh, I spent four months doing a play called Sive by John B. Keane. So I worked with a, uh, like one of the best theatre directors in the world, a lady called Gary Hines, for Druid Theatre Company. I was given this character to play. And I didn't realise, but when I went back to stand-up, the men that I travel with said to me, wow, there's been such a huge change in the way you're doing your material. Now, I had no idea what they were talking about. So I think that when 
we go back to the stage after this particular experience, we'll have changed in ways that we're not aware of. <laughs> but I'm, I would like to spend a couple of years now doing material by other people. Yeah. I'd like to just to go back to that theatrical world. I think my, I'd always lean towards the one man show. So whether it's a piece by Patrick Kavanagh or Beckett or St. Mark, I'd like to spend time in that world again, telling other types of stories. I'm kind of bored by, I'm bored by the words that I can find. Oh yes. Uh, and I'm bored by my own imagination. Mm. So I want, I, I want to live with other people's for a while. And I'd like the discipline of the characters that they're presenting. So that's what I'm thinking. I, I have stand-up stuff booked probably until April 22, starting in October. But I'm already, my mind is already going, okay. I mean, the Gospel of Mark would be fascinating. The danger of that is, you know, they, they talk about this thing, I think it's called the Jerusalem Syndrome. It's where people visit the Holy Land and become convinced that they're Christ. <laughs> But that it's a, it's a thing that can happen, you know. And Mark Maron wrote a book about it, about about going there and all these kind of weird feelings that he had, you know. <laughs> Especially for people who who work in that arena of talking to a crowd, so that there are there are dangers with certain texts, yeah. And there, there might be a danger with approaching a gospel because you can't be entirely sure. Especially if you have messenger inclinations you may remember this about i i grew up in an intensely theological household yes my dad and my brother are both preachers uh my sister was catholic with seven kids deeply into it and one of the things they're always interested in is the notion of you know the cultural christian versus the confessional christian oh yeah the one where jesus is really alive and doing shit in your life yeah. and if he is doing stuff then certainly in, in the in the strand of Christianity I grew up with, the idea was you need to get out there and let people know about it. You know, I see in you a little bit, I see the sophistication of a very literate man who doesn't ram their personal explorations of Christianity down people's throat. But on the other hand, in a very lovely way, Jesus, if not the wider remits of Christianity, it feels alive for you. Oh, totally. But I, I, so again, again, this is a notion that's that is going to be limited by language. But I'll, I'll plow on anyway. It feels to me that Satan is real, and what I what I think that I mean by that is that Buddhists call it. I think uh, Mara. And there's a great book called Living with the Devil. Those inclinations that separate and isolate and divide. And that sometimes an inclination to do something, you have to kind of examine it. Now, if the horses inside you are galloping that way, you're going to end up doing it anyway. You're going to run the risk. One of the great things that Moriarty said was, um, he said, I've hurt more people from my heights than I have from my depths. So it's when you're proud and opinionated and you have ideas of God. Yeah. You can do fierce damage to other people from that place. 
you can be you, you can be swinging a hatchet towards people <laughs> trying to get close to you. <laughs> so it, it's it's a vibrating, dangerous book. Yeah, it is. It and and that for me, the the danger of the Gospel of Mark, the storyteller's gospel, which I really do hope that you you do you know you work into, is I found it reading it again as a man of almost fifty, not a seventeen year old who was having it rammed down their throat. I found it devastating and frightening, and to be honest, it was the first time the miracles, especially, seemed like a real time account not a florid bunch of metaphors. Yeah. That freaked me out because I live in a world filled with Jungians who, uh, you know, and say, well, of course, you know, if we just relax into the divine figure of Christ, and of course, you know, none of this happened. You wouldn't be a Luddite. As far as I can tell in the Gospel of Mark, this thin-skinned whirlwind of a being is walking around crushing consciousness in his hands and I was alarmed and troubled and stirred by the time I'd finished and actually it didn't read to me like many other spiritual texts that I've gone through in my life. There's an amazing scene in it where he casts the demons into the pigs. I mean that is just an apocalyptic scene. He goes down to the tomb, this graveyard area, and there's a guy living there. He whacks rocks against his own face. He's covered in scabs and cuts. And Jesus talks to the the demon spirits inside of him. And the demon spirits say, get us out of this man and put us into those pigs. And there's 2,000 pigs. Can you imagine this is in a rural area? There's 2,000 pigs so Christ puts all the demons inside and the pigs run off a cliff and the guy is healed and then Jesus and this guy are sitting there and what's, what's remarkable about it is that right beside them in the sea are the carcasses of 2,000 dead pigs. <laughs> They're just sitting there. <laughs> I mean, it's that's about as far from uh, goody two-shoes Christianity as you can go. And then the local villagers come out and they they ask what happened. <laughs> why, the, why are all the pigs dead in the sea? <laughs> and the other way, a friend of mine said recently, the thing about pigs is like a, a dead floating pig looks like a, a naked dead person. Mm. These All these corpses are in the sea. And Jesus and this guy tell them what happened. And they ask Jesus to leave. They say, you can't stay here. You know, so just as what I would find interesting as a lazy Christian. I would love to go to a theatre where Mark's gospel was being performed. Mm. Because it's unlikely I'm ever going to read it from start to finish in one go. So I'd like to sit in a room and have some guy perform it and think about it. Yeah, I I just think it sounds uh, the most wonderful, the most wonderful idea. Because, I mean, I then leapt back as a glutton for punishment, leapt back into the Gospel of John, which is an entirely different oh, yeah. piece of work. And it's it's designed for a, di- a different audience. You know, it's a different audience to what Mark was trafficking in. I realised for me the seduction of the Gospels 
is how quickly I, because there's so much commentary on Christianity, I want to stay with the experience. I don't want to drift too swiftly into commentary on the experience. I don't want too much theory in my mouth. Yeah. But yeah. And so I was astonished at the claustrophobia of it all, the feeling of harassment round Christ. Of course, he's, per- he's permanently telling the disciples they're idiots and they don't understand. Yeah. And he's going, yeah. we've got to get out. We've got to go somewhere else. We've got to go somewhere else. The only thing I want you to do is stay awake. Just fucking yeah. stay awake. Boom. And then we're into, you know, Moriarty land. Yes. Where he really circles around. Now, a lot of the people listening to this may not know who John Moriarty is. Could you say a bit about him, Tommy? Like, how you came to his stuff? So, on one level, John was a storyteller, a writer, a poet, a gardener. One time he was an academic. But none of those descriptions do justice to his his work. He's been called the most important Irish thinker since Bishop Berkeley. Now, I don't know who Bishop Berkeley was, but that's, that, that sounds like high praise. <laughs> uh, and I first came across John in 2002. And for those people who might be interested, there's a video clip on YouTube of me meeting John where I kind of did a short interview with him. So people, people, that might be an okay place for people to start. And if John interests them from there, then you just follow a thread. His work is vast. His idea was he wanted to put, in the same way that a therapist puts a patient on a couch and goes back to their childhood to try and understand the reasons for the condition that they're in now, John wanted to do that with Western culture. He wanted to go back to the very beginnings of Western culture and discover where we went wrong. He would have he would have a sense of humanity being in collision with the earth, not just from a climatological and ecological way, but in a very deep spiritual way. So John would have taken wisdom from Native American stories. And when John takes wisdom from stuff, he goes ocean deep into that culture, into that storytelling. Aboriginal stories, Greek stories, Christian stories. And he ended up declaring himself a Christian. But his books are... Someone once described reading one of his books. It says, it's like being at sea during a storm. In an instant, you feel surrounded by high water. And all you can see is the next wave. And then after that... It's calm and you think you can see for miles and then (laughs) another wall of water. So John's work, you can drown in it and not know where you are because he's so learned. He also spent a a lot of time storytelling with audiences. So the fact that there was an audience there forced him to be communicable in a way that he wasn't when he was writing his books because he was just following his own ideas. So there are lots of CDs out there of John's storytelling and that would be a place I'd suggest people to start he's undefinable and and you can talk about people like Bob Dylan and Picasso and Mozart 
as being talents that are too big to be defined. And John was, he hasn't been discovered, so it sounds kind of strange to be talking about, God, if he was that talented, how come I haven't heard of him? John is in that territory of Mozart, Bob Dylan and Picasso. Uh, He hasn't been discovered, but, you know, Van Gogh wasn't discovered until a long time after he died, you know, so... Eva Cassidy wasn't discovered until after she had passed. God bless Eva. <laughs> Did you ever hear the story? You, you, you will remember. I know you know the story of young Dylan. He's in Hibbing or Duluth or somewhere, and he glimpses. But no, actually, more importantly, Buddy Holly glimpses him. That's right. He says they looked at each other. Yeah. He said, "I was seventeen years of age, and he looked at me, and he said something happened." Yeah. Now Dylan talks in strange ways. Dylan said Little Richard was only possible because of the atomic bomb. (laughs) And you're going, what? Yeah. And then you hear Little Richard scream. Woo! Yeah. And you're going, all right, is that that what he meant? Yeah. Dylan said recently, he was asked to uh, talk about a tour he did in 1976. And he goes, I wasn't even born then. Yeah. So Dylan... Talks in strange ways. But he mentioned, he says, he was watching Buddy Holly and Buddy Holly looked at him and something happened. Well, years later, there's a counterweight story to that. It's something like, you know, it's the end of the 90s or it's the early 2000s. And Nick Cave is at Glastonbury in his trailer and there's a knock at the door and they say, Bob Dylan would like to meet you. And that phrase is going to turn most of us to, to, it's going to turn our piss to vinegar very quick for most of us. We've met everybody, but you haven't met Bob. And he goes out and Bob, of course, is in his, he looks like he's a member of the Wu-Tang Clan. He's got his hoodie on, it's raining, there's mud. And his little slim cod, his dead handshake comes out. (laughs) And he says, I like what you do to Nick. (laughs) And Nick, of course, this is fucking moment of moments. If if Leonard Cohen had ascended then, that would have been it. The triumph, you know, yeah, would have yeah. been over. But he said, as Dylan shook my hand, an energy passed from me into him. And it did him good. Because he said, OK, got what I want, and skipped off. And he said, all I'm telling you is my next album flopped and Dylan's next album was called Love and Theft and went to number one. Yeah. <laughs> So Nick Cave saw something, some strange... I mean, he's such a magician. He's such a a magician. I mean, I always come back to an album of his that no one really talks about, but I love Street Legal. Oh, yeah. It is fantastic. And lyrically, he's on fire. I had a pony. Its name was Lucifer. How much longer? Yeah, yeah. But I got the words wrong. Because I did a, in, in very much in the spirit of your kind of investigations, Liam Amoinley came to Devon. A typical kind of Liam thing to do. I was like, we should do something. And he's like, all right, I'll be there in the morning. And suddenly he's fucking there and it's Valentine's Day. And our only agreement was there would be no set. We would, we'd have a piano, there'd be Liam, there'd be me. And we would just, as in the words of the great Finn McCall, the music of what happens. Yeah, yeah. But Liam started to sing a song from Street Legal, and you will know the lyrics because I got them wrong. Now, what is it? 
Do you love me, or are you yeah, yeah. just extending goodwill? Do you love me just as half as your face, but are you... And then what's the next bit? So do you love me, or are you just extending goodwill? Do you need me half as bad as you say, or are you just feeling guilt? Because ah! <laughs> my whole life... I think they're the lyrics anyway, I think they are. I thought it was, or, or are you just feeling ill? Which I thought was the funniest <laughs> thing I'd ever heard. It's better. It's fucking great. Or are you just feeling ill? When I was, I remember being in my early 20s, going down to Greenwich Market in London. And on one day I bought This Is The Sea by The Waterboys. And I bought Blood On The Tracks. And that was, that was about it for 10 years. There was enough information on those two records. The cover of This Is This Is The Do you remember the cover? It's oh, this, yeah. It's, yeah. it's it, the whole Roma. And it was that moment we were talking, you were talking about Kavanagh a minute ago. And I've been, I have students and I've been talking about what a culture does after a catastrophic event. And something I never knew about the Irish famine that reduced me to rubble is not just that the blight was happening, but all the fucking crop that the Irish needed to survive was growing around them and then being imported to England and other places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That devastation. And then, of course, Lady Gregory and Yates and the rest of them, they do this extraordinary thing. It's not a move of gunpowder. It's not a move of politics. It's a move of beauty. And you get this incredible Irish renaissance, which I am the benefactor of to this day. You know, to this freaking day. And even, you mentioned Beckett, even though Beckett in public would say, keep that fucking Celtic, you know, keep keep that stuff away from me. If you yeah. were at dinner with Beckett, if he had wine in him, the poet he would recite would be Yeats. Right, wow. So I love that. What I find so radical is even James, Lady Gregory lent James Joyce money. She lent him money to go on his travels in Europe and then made the heinous mistake of writing a book and said, oh, how are you, how are you going on my book? Would you review the book? And he said, this book is doggerel. And that was it. Yeah, yeah. But still, when I think of Joyce and I think of Beckett and I think of the rest of them, a writer once, a great psychologist called James Hillman, when I was writing my first book, he said, who's your enemy? I said, pardon? Don't you mean who's my audience? And he said, no, 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 no. He said, just line up an enemy and aim at them. It's not my particular cup of tea, but when I think about Bean and I think about Beckett and I think about Joyce, it's not quite that Yeats and Gregory and that whole Connaught wildness was the enemy, but it was just deep ground. And I suppose the reason this is in my mind at the moment is over the weekend I had a little Zoom call with some wonderful drama students in Belfast. Mm. God, am I old. In my mind, you see, I'm, I'm about 27 or I'm about 100. I'm 27 <laughs> or I'm 100. The reality is I'm just fucking old bloke. But anyway, I'm talking to these gorgeous, gorgeous cherubs of children who are all at, all at this college and saying, you know, excuse me, I can't do that, I, you know. I, everybody sounds like Ian Paisley. Yeah, yeah. That, that's okay. I put it to you. Where were you? Pull down your pants. You know, it's all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And they said, how do you advise us to relax into working on a play that could have an arising myth in it in such a time? And I said, well, think about stories and what cultures do after difficult experiences or catastrophic experiences. And I thought about you and I thought about John and I said, why don't you accept that part of you is Tuata Didanen? Part of you is fear, Fearbolg. Part of you is Fomorian. You were the people of art and skill. You were the people of the leather bag. Why don't you go out and find the biggest mountain you can and claim it as your great-grandfather? Find the curviest river you can and claim it as your grandmother. Be like little samurais. Because when you became a samurai, your vow, you used to have to say, I have no parents which is sometimes useful for some of us. I have no parents. I make the sun and the moon my parents. And for a while, you are a student of the universe. As Kabir says, you believe in the great sound. I love the notion that our ancestors don't have to be human. And and do you remember the thing that John would say, and you will know this, of, you know, Eru, Fola, Banva. There's many different islands. Yeah, um, he talked about... The first people to arrive on the island of Ireland and they're making their way up from the south and they meet a goddess and she says, my name is Fola, name this island after me because they would have been the first people with language and they say, okay. And then a while on, they meet this goddess called Bonva. She says, I am the goddess of this place, name this island after me. I go, okay. And then finally they meet a goddess called Eru. She says, I am the goddess of this land. Name it after me. And her name is spelt E-R-I-U. And that's where we get the name Era, which is the name for Ireland. But John would John was able to contextualize metaphor, if that's the right phrase. He was able to say I think this is what's happening in this story. He would talk about the the apostles falling asleep when he was in Gethsemane. It's not that they were tired and they fell asleep. He would talk about how the human body, when approached with a cataclysmic event, sometimes faints. He talks about people in the moment before impact in a car crash, they say that the body just faints. And he said that Christ's consciousness was opening in such a way it was so frightening the abyss of consciousness that all people could do was faint John is able to kind of do all those types of things but those you know he lived outside Killarney which for those of you who don't know is a very popular tourist town full of leprechaun shops and fellas gone ponies and traps and a thousand bed and breakfasts and Irish dancing in the big hotel every night. And John would talk about leaving the mountain where he lived to go down into Killarney to do a bit of shopping. And he talked about feeling as if he was leaving one country to enter another, you know, feeling that he was leaving Eru, Fola and Bonva to walk into Ireland. And Ireland was not a place that he wanted to belong. He also had this great phrase, he said, I have opened my mind long ago to God's horses. I mean, what is that like? 
Well, Tommy, you've been terribly generous with your time. It's so great to talk to you, Martin. And I, I can't, I'm so looking forward to seeing you again. And you're doing phenomenal work. Um, I'm in awe of your instinct and talent. So it's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, bless you, man. Thank you. He's good, isn't he, old Tommy? Eru, Bamva, Fola. Three iterations of consciousness. Three passports required. <laughs> Maybe if you're going for a pint of porter, you're walking through Eru. Maybe if you're falling into reverie, you're in Bamva. Maybe if the dreaming of the land has got a grip on you, you're in Fola. I had a shock a couple of years ago. I spat in a bottle like so many of us have and sent it off, the old DNA thing, and it came back with a surprise. It came back, it turned out my people were not my people or were a little unexpected. The message I got back was Galway, Mayo, Kerry. Galway, Mayo, Kerry. Not necessarily the great thrust of Scandinavia and Scotland that I was expecting. There's a bit in uh, Yorkshire, a little bit in Manchester, a little bit in London, but basically that's it. It's not a politically good phrase to use, Anglo-Irish, because it was the title of the landed gentry, really, in Ireland in the 19th century, where a lot of bad things happened under that phrase but it does just about describe who I am. So hearing Tommy talking, studying the work of Moriarty, hanging around with my friend Liam Amoinley, I get a little sense of older brotherness from it, which I really enjoy. I first heard someone telling Irish stories when I was a little kid, actually, when I was about, when I was about 12, and it was a black man. It was Phil Linnett from Thin Lizzy. And I remember sitting in my room with my tiny little record player and there was a song called Black Rose. And I remember the lyrics were, pray tell me the story of young Cullen, how his eyes were dark, his expression sullen, and how he'd fight and he always won. And how they cried when he was fallen. God almighty. I tell you, I almost <laughs> erupted into warp spasm there and then when I heard him singing. I was gone, gone, gone beyond. <coughs> I became crow. I still think Phil Lynott is the true vagabond, the highwayman supreme. But at the end of that chat with Tommy, I'm left again, I say it, Eru Bamva Fola. If it's true for Ireland, it's true for everywhere. So maybe every postcode has a deity attached. Every council estate, every bend in the river. I have to think that all our decision-making, all our wrongness with the living earth would change if we could just be quietened enough, quietened down to hear their names.
Thanks to Ben Adicott for producing Smoke Hole. And if you'd like to help us out and get word out, think about maybe rate and review. You could subscribe, you could tell people, and generally, Jimmy the Algorithm. Ha, ha, ha.